I am Dan Kent. Uh, I, hello, thanks for joining us online as well. And I'm impressed with the turnout here. I, I thought the day after Christmas it would be tumbleweeds, and I'm really impressed with, with the turnout. So thank you so much for coming in, and uh, thank you for giving us your attention for a little while as I share today's message. But before I do that, um, I want to just mention this, because I just found out this morning that Desmond Tutu died. Uh, and Desmond Tutu is sort of uh, a hero of mine, and, and I would like to know more. I haven't read all of his stuff, but uh, what I've appreciated about Desmond Tutu is he's kind of devoted his life to anti-apartheid uh, and anti-racism, and he's, he's stood up for people who have been sexually abused and, and uh, just a really great worker for the kingdom of God. And what I appreciate about, appreciate about him is the work that he does, he's always done with this tremendous sense of joy. And, and I just want to share this quote from Desmond uh, in appreciation for him uh, on, on his passing. And, and I'm going to try and say it the way that he said it, because that's just part of, of Desmond Tutu. He said, Then Easter happened, and whammo! Jesus breaks the shackles of death and devastation and evil. And from that moment on, we are all constrained to be prisoners of hope. Isn't that a great, and he's just, and he, and he does this with this big jolly smile on his face, and I just, I appreciate him so much, so uh, praise God for Desmond Tutu. We just finished up the Christmas series. In case you didn't know, Friday we had a Christmas service, and that's when Greg wrapped up the Christmas series that we've been working on through December. Uh, clap your hands if you were here for that. Man. I, I tell you, I loved that Christmas series, and I hope that you got as much out of that as, as I did. And uh, Greg did every single sermon in that series. And I, I, don't tell him I said this, but man, that guy brings it every week for like 30 years. He's done that, and I'm just always just grateful and impressed with what Greg uh, puts together for us. Next week, we start a new series, which means today we're in this sort of no man's land, and I get to talk about anything I want to talk about. And I want to talk to you about how you can make hundreds of dollars in your spare time. No, I'm kidding. Of course, I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm going to talk about, especially since we just came out of Christmas, I want to talk about family, and I want to talk about Sigmund Freud. Um, in particular, uh, you know, we really think that what we, how we picture God in our head, we believe at Woodland Hills here, is, is one of the most central things that we can work on in our lives, is how do we picture God? Uh, and, and that assumes that we believe that God exists. Uh, Freud did not believe that God existed. He thought that because of how amazing science is, we no longer have a need for religion and belief in God. Which kind of left the question, well, if that's the case, why do so many people still believe in God? And his answer was sort of a complicated kind of uh, psychoanalytic narrative that he created, which, by the way, was not very scientific, just for the footnote. Uh, he, he said that the reason why people still believe in God is because that they're living in, and this is his quote, blissful hallucinatory confusion. <laughs> that's people who believe in God, that's, that's what we're experiencing. What he said was, uh, he sort of psychoanalyzed believers, and he said that, look, we, we live in a dangerous world, and we're full of fear, there's despair, there's all this anxiety, and as we grow up in that, more and more and more, we long for the safety of childhood. And uh, that, there's something that seems right about that, because we do live in a dangerous world full of fear and despair and anxiety, that's true. Uh, 
but what he said is what we do is that we, in response to this fear and anxiety and dread, we sort of create this narrative. Uh, we project these kind of subconscious wishes for a, a dad, a, a father, or a, or a mother. And, and the psychological projection that we do, it kind of meets these conscious and subconscious needs. It gives us this sense of ultimate security that deeply we long for. It gives us this sense of immortality, this hope for immortality. Uh, we project this cosmic daddy figure is what he said. Um, now, I don't think that Freud succeeds in showing uh, that God does not exist by this. Uh, and I don't have time to go into counter-arguments, but maybe on Tuesday on the Musecast, uh, if people send in questions, I'll, I'll share some of my own counter-arguments to him. But I, I want to say that Freud, I think, was right about one thing, and it's a, a very important thing. I think that Freud was right that we tend to project things onto God that are more about us than they are about God. Uh, the way that Second Samuel puts this is this. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. Uh, you know, we missed the first part of that. Or maybe I did. Is that the first part of the verse on there? Shoot. Well, okay, so the verse is, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. And so what David, this is uh, David's song of deliverance, it's called. It's also found in Psalm. Uh, and what David is saying is that what we see in God a lot of times has a lot more to do with who we are than who God is. And, and so what David is saying is that, yeah, Freud is right. We project. We do project ourselves onto God. Now, to be clear, the, the New Testament does promise that we will eventually see God as God is. Uh, John promises us this in 1 John 3, 2. He says that, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall see him like he is, for we shall uh, be like him. Um, you might have a different translation there. but uh, And so what John is saying is that, First of all, he's saying that there's a connection again between who we are and who, uh, how we view God. And, and at some point, we will be like God and we will be able to see God like God is. Um, but not yet. This is a promise for what is going to be. Right now, we do not yet see God as God is fully. Uh, the way that, that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, is he says that for now we see through a glass darkly. But then we shall see face to face. Now we see in part, but then shall I know even as I am fully known. Uh, and so we see through this glass darkly. Note again that Paul is also saying that how I view God is related to who I am. He says that even as I am fully known, that's how I will know God. And so there's that intimate relationship between who I am and what I can know about God. I use the, uh, the King James translation here, which I don't use a lot. But the reason why I did that is because there's this Greek word, asoptron, or asoptron. And, uh, and the King James Version interprets that as glass. We see through a glass darkly. Almost every other translation interprets that as mirror. And, uh, and there's a good reason for that because the other time that this word is used is in James 1.23 and James is talking about seeing our own reflection in a mirror. But the word itself, asoptron, 
can be either a glass or a mirror, anything reflective. And you have to look at the context to know what the author intends. And the context here, Paul says that we look through it. And so I think that glass is a better translation of this word than mirror. Uh, because a mirror, especially then, mirrors were just shined up metal. You couldn't see through it. And, and you may be thinking that I'm making a big deal out of this. Well, maybe I am. <laughs> uh, but I think it's important because it taps into something that's really important. Because Paul is saying that we see through it. And, and glass is something that we see through and we can see on the other side. We can see another person on the other side of the glass. Even though, yeah, we can see our own reflection too. But with a mirror, we can't see through the other side. And I think what Paul is saying is that you, you do see God through the glass when you seek God. Yeah, you also see your own reflection, but there is an other there. What Freud is saying is that all we have is a mirror. There is no other. There is only self. And so I just think that there's a tremendous amount of hope in our ability to find God in the way that Paul talks about it. All right, so what do we do with this? Uh, how do we see more God when we seek God and less of ourselves? And I think I want to propose two things that we can do to see more God and less of us. The first thing, and this will be really brief because this is something that we talk a lot about here because it's just so central to everything, and that is we should get to know Jesus more and more and more. And the reason for that is because the way that Hebrews puts it, before Jesus, all we had were like these vague shadows of the truth, uh, or, or uh, Hebrews says that we caught glimpses of the truth. But Hebrews 1.3 says that in Jesus, we now have the full radiance of God's glory. No longer do we have shadows and glimpses. We've got the big ball of light itself in Jesus. And so the more we know about Jesus, the more we know about the source of that light. The way that Paul says it in uh, Colossians 2.9 is that in Jesus, the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And so the more we know about Jesus, the more we know about God. And finally, just the way that Jesus puts it in uh, John 14, 9, when you see me, you see the Father. Uh, and so this is why the Woodland Hills, it's just central to us that, that we strive to put Jesus at the center of everything, at the center of our lives, at the center of our theology, at the center of our Bible interpretation, and especially at the center of how we imagine God to be like. However, uh, even despite that, <laughs> we have a, a whole community of people who put Jesus at the center of their theology and at the center of how they interpret the Bible and so forth. And yet, there's this wide diversity of opinions about what God is like and how we should live. <laughs> and and it's, it's kind of frustrating because it's like, no, we, we all have Jesus at the center and yet we have this, this diversity. Why is that? And even when you look at the New Testament in the Gospels, you see it there as well. You have Jesus preaching this radical teaching about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. And the first time an enemy approaches the gang, Peter takes out his swords and lops off an ear. <laughs> Just totally missed the point of Jesus. He totally missed the light that Jesus was giving and he just did this act and cut off this guard's ear and Jesus had to heal him. Or uh, in Luke, uh, it, it, Luke talks about how Jesus taught about how we are all brothers and sisters and that in the kingdom of God, there's this profound equality. Uh, there, nobody is better or more loved or, or more special than anybody else in the kingdom of God. And yet they argued before Jesus about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
<laughs> and Jesus had to say, hello, have you not been listening to me? And, and so he had to correct them. And then a couple chapters later, they argued about it again. I mean, they are right next to Jesus here, and they still, there's something blocking the light. There's something blocking the light, even for them. How much more so for us uh, as we seek God? So what, what do we do? How, how, do we, how do we solve this? I think um, definitely putting Jesus at the center, I think, is the most important thing. But getting to know Jesus is just one part of the equation here. If the problem is, is that we have a, our own reflection between us and God, then the second part of the solution is getting to know ourselves. Getting to know ourselves. We have to see who Jesus is and we have to be, be able to detect, oh, that's just me. <laughs> we have to be able to do that. And that's how I think we get better at being able to discern what's God and what's us. Now, in a lot of ways, it's a lot harder to know ourselves than it is to know somebody else because we grow up with ourselves. We've always been with us. We, we don't notice our own smell. We don't notice our own personality flaws. I think I'm great. And it's only in relationship that I realize maybe I'm not as great as I thought I was. Uh, you know, maybe I'm not as funny as I thought I was. I, I laugh at my jokes. I don't know why nobody else does. You know, and, and it's in relationship that you start to learn more about yourself because you're too familiar with yourself. And so you need something to kind of show you yourself. And there's probably a lot of things that help with this. Relationship is really good. For me, something that really helps is psychological models. You know, like the MMPI and the uh, Myers-Briggs and things like that can be really helpful. Uh, I think it was a year, maybe two years ago, we did a series on uh, attachment theory. And attachment theory, and we, we looked at attachment theory and how that relates to our relationship with God. And that was a really helpful series. I want to do something similar to that. I want to look, especially since we're talking about, uh, you know, Freud saying that God is just a projected father and, and Jesus calls us children of the father and the Bible talks about God as a father and as a mother. Uh, I want to talk about parenting styles and I want to ask questions about parenting styles and our relationship with God. And I think that, uh, I think that this could be very helpful. It's been really helpful for me and really helpful for some of my students. I first kind of came upon this parenting styles research in college, and uh, I, I was originally, I was a, a psychology major. Well, that's what I became. I became a psychology major, uh, and a, I double majored in philosophy, which, by the way, is a fantastic double major. Uh, psychology, this is my pitch for psych and philosophy. Psychology is the study of people. Philosophy is the study of systems. And everything in the world is about people and systems. That's my pitch. <laughs> All right, so uh, the goal here is to uh, look at parenting styles, and really what I, I, I want us to think about is what are our assumptions about good parenting, and maybe we could even see what possible upbringing wounds might I have because of my parents' parenting style. What I don't want to do is I don't want people to feel shame about themselves and their parenting styles because what we'll find is that even in the less effective parenting styles, a lot of times those are driven by very good motivations. And a lot of times they're, they're shaped by circumstance. And so this isn't about, you know, I'm a lousy parent. That's, don't, don't feel that. That's, that. that's not helpful. Really, I want you to think about this as a child, when you were a child and what your parents were like. That's how I would like you to kind of reflect on this. So... I want to look at Diana Baumrein's work. And Diana basically said that she had three parenting styles that she looked at. And she said that all of these parenting styles are based on how parents control two levers. 
One lever is how much control they exert over the child. And the other lever is how they show affection or warmth or responsiveness to the child. And it's in controlling these two levers that Diana said that you have these different parenting styles. Uh, And so this is super dumbed down and simplified, and and her theory has just a ton of nuance and tens of thousands of articles written about it. So I'm just given just the basic bare bones so that it can help us with our relationship with God. Does that sound good? Okay, thanks. First one is authoritarian parenting. Uh, in, in the three views are authoritarian parents, permissive parents, and then this third view, which she said was like a healthy parent, and she called it authoritative parenting. And that sounds too much like authoritarian, so I just call it healthy parenting. And so the first one is authoritarian parents. And authoritarian parents tend to have high control. They tend to have a lot of demands. They tend to be strict. And they're driven by this assumption that kids need structure. And that's very true. Kids need structure. And so they crank the control lever all the way up and uh, they they tend to have high expectations. They have a high view of parental authority and and they'll justify their decisions and their rules by things like, because I said so, because I'm the parent. And they really lean on just that alone is enough to, to justify the rules. It's what's good about a parenting style like this is that the kid grows up with very clear boundaries very clear structure about how things are going to go. The communication in an authoritarian home tends to be one direction. It tends to be top-down parents to kids. Uh, And affection, a lot of times in authoritarian homes, ends up being dependent on uh, the obedience of the kid or on the performance of the kid or on the compliance of the kid to the expectations. So this lever, the control lever, is up here like this. It's just stuck there. But the affection lever, a lot of times, fluctuates depending on how the kid does. Now, kids in this environment, they tend to have predictable outcomes. They tend to have uh, a weak sense of self because their parents make all the decisions for them. The parents create the structure, the parents tell them what they should do, and there's consequences if you don't do it. And so they don't really develop a sense, a strong sense of self. They kind of uh, end up having like poor self-control because they, they haven't been given a lot of authority of their own. They've always lived under the parents' authority. And, um, and so they also tend to have poor spontaneity because they grew up kind of doing what the parents told them to do. They tend to need structure because that's what they're most familiar with. That's how they know how to live. Uh, they, they tend to become dependent on authority. These are kids who grow up driven to get a good job at a good company with good leadership. That's, that's, oh, that's, that's a, a good goal for a kid who's really soaked in this type of parenting style. They tend to have really poor initiative because it's the parents who tell them what to do, not themselves. However, once they start a task, they tend to have tremendous follow-through because they've always experienced a lot of consequences for failure. So they tend to have really good follow-through. They tend to live with a lot of performance anxiety because so much has been at stake on their performance. And uh, they also tend to have a higher addiction risk than normal and a high uh, uh, depression risk. That's the authoritarian uh, parents and kids. The permissive parents kind of go the opposite direction. Permissive parents tend to have very few rules. They take that control lever and they put it all the way down. They tend to have few rules, few expectations, low expectations. They have a low sense of authority. Uh, They're kind of driven by this true belief, again, that in order for kids to learn, they kind of have to learn on their own. 
And I think there's something right about that. And that a lot of times sort of drives this type of parenting style. And a lot of times circumstances demands this type of parenting style too. If a, if a parent has to work double shifts and single parents and stuff like that, a lot of times you're forced to be a permissive parent because you just can't be there as much as you want. Communication in a permissive home tends to be looser than in an authoritarian home. A lot of times, uh, permissive homes, uh, the, the kind of the language around the relationship between the parents and the kids are like, we're best friends. We're, we're pals. We're buddies. That's a lot of times the language there. Uh, when there are rules in a permissive home, a lot of times it feels inconsistent. The rules are just like, sometimes there's rules, sometimes there isn't. And it's ambiguous why this rule is even there. And affection in, in this type of setting also feels kind of random and just kind of fortuitous. In the authoritarian home, you know exactly why you're getting affection because you did well. In the permissive home, it's just kind of random. It just kind of hits you all of a sudden. It's like, oh, that's, that's great. Uh, and so it's very unpredictable. Kids in a permissive home, they tend to grow up very differently than kids in authoritarian homes. Kids in a permissive home tend to have a really strong sense of self because they've always been able to do whatever they want. And so they've been able to develop a strong sense of self. However, uh, being able to do whatever you want, well, what do you want to do? Well, you want to do things that feel good. <laughs> you want to do things that are fun. And so a lot of times, kids in permissive homes tend to have poor self-control because uh, they kind of adapt this hedonic, sort of hedonistic way of living. They do what feels good. They tend to make poor decisions. Uh, you know, with, without the structure, it's hard to know what a good decision is. They tend to kind of grow up with a low authority need. They don't, they don't need authority. They want to be independent. The, the idea of getting a good job at a good company with good leadership, no thanks. I want to be an independent contractor. I want to be an artist. I want to be something where I can be on my own. That's, that's a permissive uh, kid. Um, in fact, sometimes kids in permissive homes will end up growing up to disrespect authority because what has authority ever done for me? And so they, a lot of times there's like a negative attitude about authority. Kids in permissive homes tend to have really good initiative because they've always been able to do whatever they want and they've tried all sorts of things. However, without the structure, they've never been held accountable and so they don't have very good follow-through, typically. They start things and they, they never finish them. They tend to have a high addiction risk, but it's based more out of their hedonism, whereas authoritarian kids, they tend to be addicted because it gives them a sense of self. It gives them an internal experience that feels like selfhood, but it's not. And so they both have a higher addiction risk, but for totally different reasons. Uh, kids in permissive homes tend to have a higher depression risk, but a lower suicide risk whereas kids in an authoritarian home tend to have uh, a higher suicide risk and a lower depression risk than permissive homes. Now, why is that? Uh, my hypothesis is because when you have a strong sense of self, it's a, there's a lot more at stake there than if you have no sense of self. You're not really putting a lot at stake. And so that's the experience. That, that strong sense of self is so, so central. Okay, so those are the, the less effective parenting styles. And again, no shame here. We, no parent is perfect, and we all come from these different types of things. Uh, this is mostly to help you be able to recognize yourself when you're seeking God. Now, the healthy parenting style, uh, which Baumrein calls the, calls the authoritative model, it tends to have some rules, but those rules are goal-based. And the goals are about what the kids and the parents both want out of life. 
And so you create rules that help the kid be who the kid wants to be. Uh, you have dynamic expectations. Your expectations of the kids can change based on the kid's abilities, the kid's limitations, the kid's passion, the kid's interests. You adjust the expectations according to that. Authority in this healthy model ends up being collaborative, where the kids and the parents, the parents are the authority, but the kids get to collaborate with that authority. And so communication, a lot of times, is two ways between the parents and the kids. I got to experience this uh, after high school. I got to live with some good friends and my buddy Randy uh, and his two brothers uh, were good, good friends of mine, and, and they invited me to stay with them for a couple months before I went to college. And what I found is that every Thursday, they had a family meeting. And, uh, and at this family meeting, they would just kind of talk, everybody would talk about what's going on in their lives. And then the parents would kind of help them with you know, are you getting what you want out of life? Are you, are you happy? Are you, are you making any headway on what you want to do? And this one particular time, Randy was struggling in this class, which is just absurd because he's the smartest person I know, and I don't think he ever got anything less than an A- minus in any of his classes. But this one time, he was having a hard time with his classes. He was working at Arby's at the time, and he was working like four shifts a week because he uh, was interested in a female coworker, And so he was trying to find as many opportunities to be with her as he could. And so he was working all these shifts and now his grades started to suffer. And, uh, and so his mom told him, he said, you know, Randy, uh, you want to get to Concordia. That's only a year and a half away. Concordia is hard to get into and you want to do debate and they're not going to take you seriously uh, in your application if you don't do good in your rhetoric class. I mean, that's kind of a key part of your whole goal, and you're not doing very well. And so maybe, maybe you should just cut back to one shift a week at Arby's. And, and Randy replied, and he said, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm, I, I need to do better there. Uh, and this is what blew me away. Randy said, I think I'd be okay with two shifts a week. And his parents, and this just baffled me, said, oh, okay, let's try two shifts then. We'll give that a shot. And you see how that collaboration took place there? Uh, and a kid who grows up in that, especially when you have this constant affection from your parents, where it doesn't matter if you fail, the affection is constant. A kid in that type of environment grows up with a good sense of self-control. They tend to have good decision-making abilities. They tend to be spontaneous without being impulsive. Uh, they tend to collaborate with authority. They tend to have low performance anxiety because they've always had that affection no matter how they perform. They tend to take smart initiative and they tend to have really good follow-through. That's, that's, that's the ideal. Uh, that's sort of what Baumrein says is, is the ideal. The question now, given that model, and again, I just tapped the surface on, on this, uh, and this is something that's worth looking more into if it interests you. But the question that I want to look at here is this. How do you view God as a parent? I propose that God, as the Bible uh, presents God, is very much like this authoritative parent, very much like this healthy parent. And there's a ton of verses to look at about this, but I want to go to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And this is a verse that the Israelites would go back to over and over and over again to point at what God is like. Over 20 times in the Old Testament, we're pointed back to this verse. This is what God is like. And Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says, And the Lord passed by before them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, and that 
will by no means clear the guilty, rather bringing consequences to the guilty. Now that last verse I I translated just to summarize it a little bit because it kind of went on and on and on. But if you look at the Hebrew words here uh, in, in this passage, it's, it's just fascinating. The first word that's used is, is the, the Hebrew word for compassionate. And, um, and so God is compassionate. And, and the root for compassionate in Hebrew is the same word that's used for the word womb, a woman's womb. And so God's compassion is like a mother's tenderness. 34, 6, and 7 says that God is gracious. Uh, and what that means is it's, it's this delightful favor that God gives us. It's this uh, gift that he gives us that it's not earned. He gives us gifts simply because he delights in us. That's very different than an authoritarian parent. This is just because he delights in us, not because we've earned it, not because we've gotten good grades or anything like that. This God is slow to anger uh, Exodus says. He gives us room to fail. It's okay if we don't meet up to expectations. We have more and more opportunities to pick ourselves up and try again. He gives us this loyal love. Uh, and the, the, the same type of love that's used here is the same thing that, that Ruth was called when, when her uh, loyalty to Naomi was discussed in the book of Ruth. In other words, this God does not give up on you. God does not give up on us, even when we fail. Uh, God is there. This God is faithful. Uh, He's steady, reliable, trustworthy. And finally, this God does have authority and he does bring consequences. Unlike a permissive parent, uh, there are consequences because it really matters to this God that we learn, that we become more godlike. And so here's my question for you is, is when you picture God, when you think about God, do you think about God in this authoritative way? Is your picture of God, when you're thinking about God, does it have this steadfast love, this ongoing love, this unconditional love? You don't have to earn it, it's just there. Uh, Is there this mother's tenderness to God when you think about God? Does God respond to you emotionally when you are having emotions? Does this God encourage you when you're not feeling very encouraged? Uh, Does this God trust you is this God capable of trusting you? Is this God, does this God have high expectations for you? Because a high expectation assumes that they think highly of you. <laughs> and so does this God think high enough of you to give you high expectations? Uh, does this God have clear boundaries? Does this God have good rules for you to follow so that you can live life to the full? Does your God accommodate you when you have personal weaknesses, when you have personal struggles? Does this God, is he flexible to uh, your failures, to your attempts? Uh, is, is this God a God who allows you to experience the consequences of your decisions? I hope so, because I, I think that is the, the, the God that um, the, the Bible kind of gives us. But it's possible that you might be holding a more of an authoritarian view of God. And, uh, and maybe your God uh, is more rule-oriented. And maybe your God uh, is more demanding and, and uh, inflexible. And maybe your God loves you only when you are meeting expectations, only when you're doing well. Um, God, for you, maybe withholds his affection if you're disobedient. Maybe your God is present with you, except not in a way that you like. <laughs> maybe God is with you as an observer watching for you to screw up. 
That's an authoritarian view of God. Uh, Greg has shared this multiple times about when he talks to people about their picture of God, uh, he's had people say things like, uh, when I think of God, I think of God with his hand back ready to slap when I screw up. That's a very authoritarian view of God. And if that's the God that you tend to think of, well, a model like this can allow us to see, you know, that's just me. That's just my own authoritarian view. And it gives us a direction like, you know what, I need to learn how to live more and more into God's tender, unconditional love. And that's something that you can kind of live more and more into. Or maybe you have more of a permissive view of God. Maybe your God, uh, you know, God loves me, of course. You know, God loves me. I'm great. You know, you have that full, strong sense of self. Uh, you know, and the rules are just, they're, they're not that important. You don't have to, as long as you know that God loves you, that's all that really matters. The rules are, aren't important. And religion, nah, that's, that's not important. And, uh, you know, and maybe for you, um, the traditional stuff and the, the, the religion stuff, maybe that's all fake and the only thing that's real for you is, is the fact that God loves you. And that's great because that is absolutely central. So I'm glad that you, you believe that God loves you. Uh, but however, if you're doing that from a place of having a permissive view of God, a lot of times your experience of God can be of a God that's just not there. He's nowhere around. He loves you from some far off place. Uh, but he's not with you. He's not uh, there in any relevant day-to-day sort of way. And uh, this, I think, is true for a a lot of people, myself included. As I've gone through this experience and looking at these models, I've come to the conclusion that I have a tendency to, to have a permissive view of God. And I struggle with taking rules seriously. And I tend to lean heavily on God's grace. God's so forgiving, you know. And, and I tend to have a hard time thinking that God is actually responsive to me here in a real way. Uh, he loves me, but he's off somewhere else and I, I don't experience his presence. Uh, and, and so for me, what I've had to do uh, is I've had to live more and more and more into things like God's commands and, and learning to take the rules seriously. Uh, and learning to see that the expectations that God has for me is because he thinks highly of me, not because he wants to control me, but because he wants me to be something more. Uh, God gives us these rules these, as, as a gift so that we can uh, live more fuller lives. Yes, God loves me, of course. Uh, but because God loves me, he wants me to be so much more. Um, I've just barely kind of tapped the surface of the potential of this, and, and I hope that you, you think about this. It's the type of thing that, for me, the more I think about, the more application I find, and the more I start to see, gosh, you know, that's, that's, there's my permissiveness again. There's my permissive self. When I thought I'm looking at God, no, that's just my permissive self. And, and, and I encourage you to, to, to keep thinking about this because I think it can be very, very helpful. A big part of discipleship, I believe, is being able to do projection detection. <laughs> Being able to detect when I'm just projecting myself when I'm seeking God. And, and the solution is, I think, knowing more and more about who Jesus is and knowing more and more about who I am. Uh, and this is not because I'm self-obsessed. It's not because I just want to, oh, I want to know more about myself. That's, that's not it. It's really more about removing the things that are blocking out the light. It's removing the smudges on my side of the glass so that I can see more of who God is. That's the ultimate goal. I'm going to talk more about this on Tuesday on the MuseCast, so feel free to send questions uh, to Shauna and I. Uh, you can go to musecast at uh, whchurch.org. 
We also have a prayer, online prayer. If you have any needs for prayer, you can come up here as well if you're in the building. And uh, we have gathering groups on Monday, which I have not been a part of a gathering group yet, but I hear that they can have sort of a raucous time. So, so check that out. Uh, and I should try that as well. Uh, and then finally, if you want to join us, we're starting a new series next week. If you're going to join and if you have kiddos, uh, if you could just do us a favor and let us know that you're coming so that we can kind of prepare uh, for volunteers and so forth. Thank you very much uh, for your attention. I hope that that, uh, some of these ideas bless you, and uh, I I hope to see you soon. Thanks for coming in, and Happy New Year. I think this is the last message of the year, so I hope you have a blessed uh, year in 2022. And um, yeah, thank you so much.